Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. that for seven verses, or he mentioned the fact that it's 90 feet tall. Notice it's an image, and the question is, is this an image of uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, or is it an image of an unnamed Babylonian deity? Well, in Craig Keener's book, uh, excuse me, not Keener on the New Testament, but John Walton and a couple others in Old Testament background, they make a note that it was a rare thing for a Mesopotamian king to deify himself, that that was an unusual thing, not like Egypt, where the pharaohs were often made gods, but not true of the Mesopotamian kings. So it's unlikely that Nebuchadnezzar is elevating himself to a place of deity. Rather, the reference throughout the chapter is falling down and worshiping Nebuchadnezzar's gods that is represented here. Three times it says that. So he is portraying some deity of Babylon. And Marduk was the great Lord of the gods, so it may be an image of Marduk. We're not sure which god it is. It's not important because he's not named, but involves the worship of another deity for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So here we have this great image, and it's very unlikely that it was made of solid gold. What they did is they cast these things out of metal, or carved them out of wood, and then they were overlaid with gold. So it's probably a golden image in that sense that it was overlaid with gold. Notice where it was set up. He set it up in the plain of Dura. That's about 16 miles south of the actual city of Babylon. So here's just some interesting little details that we want to note along the way. So this is where it was set up, and they gathered all these officials. They might be listed in in some sort of pecking order here as the most important as well, because they seem to be listed in the same order in both of the lists. Well, they're actually listed, I think, three times. So this herald takes the stage in verse 4, and he makes this proclamation to all these officials, apparently the officials represented the peoples of various uh, aspects of the nations that were conquered, perhaps, or within Nebuchadnezzar's own government. I'm not sure. But he had gathered all these people together, and they hear the proclamation that's made that they have to fall down and worship upon the threat of being immediately executed. Quite a demand. What was, what was Nebuchadnezzar's point in, in that? Well, that's an interesting observation that was made that it may be his attempt to unify his kingdom 
around one religion, namely his. It's his God that's represented. So he, he has conquered these nations. Remember uh, the map I showed you last week of, the, of, the, of Babylon's kingdom? It wasn't that big compared to the next one. The Medo-Persian Empire becomes quite extensive by comparison, but wherever Nebuchadnezzar had control, he wanted unity. That's important to the kingdom surviving. They, they have to be one. And there's no better unifying factor than religion if everybody is holding to the same belief system. So he's bringing everybody under the same umbrella. Now, a note about the furnace. These, the furnace here mentioned, and there could have only been one in Babylon. don't know how many there were, if there was more than one, but they were not designed as a place to execute people. They, their primary use was for firing brick. In the ancient world, a lot of the ancient peoples constructed things out of sun-dried mud brick. You see it in Egypt in the beginning of Exodus when the Jews were making mud brick and it had straw in it and then the, they were being punished. You had to go get your own straw and you remember the story. And that's how a lot of the construction was, by mud brick. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do it like that. He fired it in furnaces, so he turned it into a brick. And these furnaces were used for that principally. So this is the threat, fiery furnace, fueled probably by charcoal. And they no doubt understood the use of bellows and being able to heat the furnace up with bellows. And they approximate the temperature at about 1,800 degrees when they're full on. So as soon as the people are given this command and the orchestra begins to play the music, they all comply. There, there's no dissenters here. Nobody is disobedient to Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody falls down, they worship, everything's wonderful. Now, in verses 8 to 18, we have now the focus on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you've got these whistleblowers, these informants in the government. And notice who they are. They are the Chaldeans. Now, that is a reference to one of the class of wise men from chapter 1 and 2, the Chaldeans. This was one of the groups that was saved by Daniel's intervention in the last chapter when he read the king's dream back to him, told him what it was and the interpretation, and thus they were spared death in chapter 2. But here they are telling on the Daniel's three friends in order to get them in trouble. No doubt they're driven by uh, jealousy. Notice how they put this. The Chaldeans, they came forward, they maliciously accused the Jews, and then they specifically uh, 
said who it was. But notice how they say this. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And probably they were over them, over the Chaldeans as well. So they didn't like it that they were in a place of inferiority and subordination to these foreigners who had come into the kingdom. So there's resentment there. This is their opportunity to get them in trouble. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's notice his response in verse 13. He flew into a, a rage when he heard this. O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was furious. So Nebuchadnezzar confronts them. He, he calls for them to come into his presence. And then he confronts them with, with what they've done, an act of defiance. And he gives them an opportunity to recant, as it were, and to comply hoping that they will. Remember, he had elevated them, and they were impressive young men. He didn't want to lose them. He would not want them to die. He had them as his servants in the court. And what happens here? Well, when he says to them, At the end of 15, after threatening again that they're going to be cast into the fiery furnace, and then Nebuchadnezzar adds, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? He has no idea really what he's saying, but this this is a reminder to us of another king prior to Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib of the Assyrian army. And you might remember the story when they were moving through Judah and they were conquering the cities of Judah that they came to Jerusalem and made the threat to King Hezekiah that they were going to take Jerusalem. And this is is repeated in Isaiah's prophecy and also in 2 Kings. But notice... These are not the words of Sennacherib directly, but through his messengers, they came and spoke this to King, to the people in Jerusalem as they were on the wall listening to this message. This is what they said. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Orpat, who among all the gods have declared that the lands have delivered, excuse me, their lands out of my hand? So that's a, the threat is a little more detailed there, but it's the same idea exactly as what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. Who can deliver out of my hand what God is there? Well, he's about to find out because God, God heard that. That's a direct challenge to him. It's sort of a taunt at the same time. He didn't know what he was saying, but it was a challenge to Yahweh. 
to respond. Now we come, uh, still under their refusal to comply. Here's one of the greatest confessions in the Bible, actually. Listen to what they, they say in reply to Nebuchadnezzar. They answered and they said to him, We have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, there's no way we're going to comply with this. We have nothing to say in defense. We're guilty as charged. Do what you will with us. If you have to throw us into the fiery furnace, go ahead. But they, they add, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Now they know the power of Yahweh. He, they know he's the creator of all things. This is a small thing for him. There's, no, there's nothing hard for omnipotence. Everything is on the same level. Everything is easy for when you take a being who has all power at his disposal. Every challenge, no matter what it is, it's easy. He he can deliver from fire. The, The being who created our sun, a million times larger than the earth, he can deliver from a little fire. Well, they, they know who God is, so they have complete confidence that if he, want, he has the ability to deliver them, and thus he would deliver them from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. But they're, they're not certain, they're not presumptuous in believing that they're going to be delivered for sure, because they go on to say, but if not, in other words, if it's not his pleasure to deliver us and we die in the furnace... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, and so on. So, I mean, they're very firm about it, uncompromising. Notice that their their firmness in their conviction here, their unwillingness to give an inch and to go along with this, is not driven by their belief that they are going to be delivered from the fire. That's an important point. They know that God can deliver them, and that if he does, they will be delivered from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. But if that's not God's will, that's not what they're concerned about, or that's not the thing that is making them so strong in their view that they know God is going to save them. Rather, what is it that... They don't want to break the law of God. It's it's their commitment to obedience. You shall have no other gods before me and don't bow down to any images. This is the violation of the first two commandments in the law of Moses. So this is why they're uncompromising. They will not go along with this no matter what. So now what happens? After they... Say that to Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19 through the end, their miraculous deliverance from the fiery furnace. But Nebuchadnezzar 
he's now, his anger is boiling over. He is in a full rage, so much so it, his complete countenance changes. And we understand that language. When somebody's really angry, what happens? Their face gets red. They get a, they look like they can kill you right on the spot. So this is what is being expressed to us here about Nebuchadnezzar. And there's no more mercy, no more second chances. He wants them ordered right now, thrown into the fiery furnace, heat that furnace up. Seven times, this is kind of an idiom for make it as hot as possible. And they raise the temperature probably way beyond what they normally had it when they fired bricks. And it was so powerful that the soldiers, it was soldiers that took them and immediately threw them, they had all their clothes on and everything, throw them in as they were. Apparently they dropped in from the top. So this is a furnace that was shaped like, they say, a beehive. So a rounded thing like this, but apparently an opening from the side where Nebuchadnezzar is going to be able to look in and see what's going on. But they were dropped in from the top, and the fire came out and killed the men who were dropping them in. All self-explanatory. Now we come to the, the astonishing thing. Nebuchadnezzar, he rose up in haste. He declares to the counselors. So what, what did he see? Notice there's an emphasis about them being bound. Did you catch that? I underlined it. And the idea of them being bound, it keeps emphasizing that. We don't know. Were the hands tied behind the back or whatever? They were bound. Four times. So when Nebuchadnezzar peers into the interior of the furnace, he sees them unbound. That's the only thing that was burned were what tied them, tied their hands, tied their legs. Why did they do that? Probably to keep them from struggling and running out. Who knows? They were bound. But when he looks in, the three men who were bound... Now there's four men, and none of them are bound. So big change. And he's surprised by this. And they're walking in the midst of the fire, not trying to run out. They're not heading to the exit. They're walking around in the fire. Four men. Nebuchadnezzar's description of what he sees is the fourth man is like a son of the gods. Now the word for gods is the plural form for God. It's Elohim. So the translation in some of the Bibles may say like the son of God because it is singular when it's talking about the true God. Elohim plural is Translated singular, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Elohim. But here our translators choose to translate it as plural, gods. 
which I believe is the correct translation. I think what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's looking at this and he's making a call about who he thinks is with them. This is some supernatural being that comes out of the realm of the gods who is with them and protecting them. I don't believe it's a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, though that is a traditional belief that this is Jesus before he became a man, the Son of God, with them. Who is it? I believe it's an angel because it's referenced in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. And I think that's where we actually have the, who the agent here is of their deliverance, that it is an angelic being, supernatural being. Because the parallel passage is over in the sixth chapter when Daniel is in the lion's den and they shut and the, the mouths of the lion are shut so they do not devour Daniel. And again, it's recorded that it was an angel that shut the mouths of the lions. And that's Daniel himself who says that. God has sent his angel. So for, the, for that reason, I believe we're looking at a supernatural being, an, an angel who is the agent of their deliverance here. So he came to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and notice, this is Nebuchadnezzar. He's got a new title for their God. Servants of the Most High God. This is the first time he says this. Now make a note of that. Because when we come to chapter 4, that title for God is used like a half a dozen times. This is how Nebuchadnezzar is coming to a knowledge of the God of Israel. He is now the Most High God when he sees what he's done for his servants. And notice he has to call them out. He has to command them to come out of the furnace. They're not trying to escape. They're walking around together in the, in the fire. Not until they hear the command of Nebuchadnezzar, Come here, come out. Do they come out of the furnace, out of the fire? And all of those officials, again, they're listed. Verse 27, they gather together to witness this. This is an amazing thing. And the, the observation that they make about this is, is wonderful, isn't it? The fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. Not any of their hair was singed. Their clothes were not burned. And they didn't have the smell of smoke on them. 
Nebuchadnezzar, he is very, very moved and impressed by this. He's never seen anything like this before. He threw out the challenge, what God is there that can deliver out of my hand? And it has happened, and so he's acknowledging the God of the Hebrews. He is the Most High. He has sent his angel and delivered his servants, notice, who trusted in him. Who trusted in him. You know, I've said several times since we have been in this church, and I like to bring it out every now and then, that there's a big difference between believing in God and trusting in him. That separates the Christian from the non-Christian. Believing in God is not enough to be saved. The demons believe and tremble, we're told in the book of James. They, they believe in God more than any of us do. But does our belief in God lead us to trust him? That's a whole other level of belief. That's putting our belief into practice. That's working it out in our life. If I really believe in Yahweh and in his ability, his power to deliver, can we, can a person take that step and trust him for that deliverance? Can we trust him daily to take care of us, to provide for us? This is the basis of a lot that Jesus says in Matthew 6 about not worrying, not to be anxious. It's our trust in God that enables us to not worry about the temporal things of this life. Well, that's a key thing here. You'll come out again in chapter 6 when he when it's about Daniel, it's because Daniel trusted in God as well. It's trust. Trust is reliance upon God, relying on him. So it's an important observation that's made that they not only believe, they trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. So Nebuchadnezzar's making a confession here, isn't he? But he's not converted yet. A person can be convinced, and even confess, but not yet quite converted. What we want to hear is Nebuchadnezzar saying, Yahweh is my God, and I renounce all the gods of Babylon. Then you would know he's transformed and converted. So he, he's, he's gradually coming to a knowledge of God. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he makes this decree. He just totally changes everything. I make a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against their God shall be, like he said in the previous chapter, torn from limb to limb and their houses uh, destroyed. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So it's a great confession on Nebuchadnezzar's part. 
He's recognizing that he has witnessed something that was of a very unique nature, totally miraculous. And he's on his way to an understanding of God, but hasn't learned his lesson when you come to chapter 4. <laughs> he's still, still thinking about himself as the supreme sovereign in the fourth chapter. So what, what can we draw from this? I mean, there's many things that we can say about it in conclusion. Um, I'd like to make this one, that God has in the past delivered some people in a, in a way from fire, uh, literally, but not in the sense of them being protected from the fire. There is an account of an English reformer by the name of James Bainham who died in 1532. He was a lawyer, a Protestant, English reformer, and he was burned at the stake for heresy in 1532. And while he was burning in the fire, and his arms and his legs were on fire, he said to the people that were around him, he said, if you want to witness a miracle, look at this, I feel no more pain than if I was in a bed of down. You know what down is, obviously. Down pillows and all of that. In other words, he was totally comfortable while his body was on fire. And he's not the only one that's said things like that. There's others, other martyrs. So they, they were able to give up their lives burning, but without the pain. That, that also is miraculous. So this is, this is what God can do. Is there another account about fire in the Bible? I was thinking, what, what else? Oh, yeah, the bush that was on fire in Exodus 3. Now, that was God's presence represented there when he appeared to Moses. Moses looked over and he saw a bush that was flaming with fire, but it wasn't consumed. Well, these are, this is the kind of things that God can do. Very miraculous, very powerful and impressive in order to get people's attention. He reveals himself in this way. So, you don't know. If you were called to give your life up in a horrific manner, how you never know how God is going to take you through that. Because in our own strength, we might feel like, I, I could never do that. I can't even hold a match over my finger for five seconds without feeling intense pain. What if I, my body was engulfed in flames? ISIS, ISIS, you might remember, they, they burned Christians. They put them in cages and then put a fire around them so they couldn't escape. And they burned to death inside the cage. We have no idea how God might have comforted some of them 
that died in that way. Another thing that the story teaches, which may be the main point, I'm trying to look at it from different angles. Clearly, the thing that's underlying all of this is the fact that God is with his people, he is present with his people when they face great affliction, suffering, and hardship. Now, it's not a new teaching. We, the Bible asserts that in, in different ways, in either statements or in examples in the Bible. But God is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. At those moments when we need Him most, when we need His presence with us to comfort us and to carry us through, we know He will be there with us. I like Isaiah 43. I remember preaching on this way back when Mike Castle was still alive. When he was going through cancer therapy, and I filled in for him. Some of the early sermons I gave to the church was on God's presence with his people in their sufferings. You might remember Isaiah 43 and verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, says the Lord. And, and notice this. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Now, that literally was fulfilled here in our account this morning. But it's not, that's not how he means it in Isaiah 43. It just means you're going to be able to go through great suffering, but it's not going to totally destroy you. I, I'm there with you as you go through it. I will carry you through. You have my presence. You have my promise that I will be with you. I like the example of Paul at the end of the at the end of his ministry. His very last letter called his swan song, Second Timothy. Last thing he wrote before his execution in Rome was Second Timothy, written to his favorite fellow servant that he had a ministry to originally in Lystra, and Timothy was saved under Paul's ministry. It was his son in the faith. He loved this young man. He mentored him in the ministry. And he wrote this final letter to him. But he says in the fourth chapter, as he's coming to the end of his letter, no one has stood with me. Everyone has deserted me. Very sad words. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And this is what he's saying about everybody. That he was all alone, he was standing all alone in Rome, but then he says in the next verse, but the Lord has stood with me and strengthened me. It's 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 and 17. That's what we can expect, that God is with his people in their trials. You don't go through your trials, no matter how heart-wrenching they are, without God's presence. So don't doubt it. When the sky is just black with clouds and stays that way for days, you can be sure the sun is still shining above those clouds. You have not lost his love. You haven't lost his presence. He is with you 
He's with us. Then I want to look at it from the, from the standpoint of idols. They refuse to bow to this idol, this statue, and worship. Now, our idols in this country do not represent deities. But there are many idols, aren't there? Anything is an idol that becomes our greatest love and concern in this life. And Paul makes that transition from an actual deity represented by an image to something that preoccupies a person and engulfs their life and consumes them. When he says in Ephesians 5.5, talking about covetousness, which is idolatry. What is covetousness? Well, covetousness is wanting things, desiring things, whatever it is. A desire that just grows and uh, we're not happy, not, not content until we get that thing. Whatever consumes us, whatever becomes our greatest concern, that becomes a, an idol to, to us. And the Americans have many idols. Things that take God's place. Remember how John's first letter ends? John's first John? The very last verse of first John. First John 5.21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Wow, what a way, what a way to end an, a, a letter. So we, we need to just keep that in mind. This chapter underscores that. These men were not willing to put anything in the place of Yahweh, a visible representation of another deity, but it could be something else for us in the 21st century. We have to beware of these little idols that we can have. Maybe we don't even realize it. And I just want to throw out the, the question, because it's, it's something that we all need to be thinking about. What, what is the issue or the issues for us today where we draw the red line and say, you know, I can't do that. I'm not going to cross this. This becomes something that I'm even willing to give my life up for in order not to cross that red line. What, what are those things? Do we have things like that that are that important to us as Christians today? I think there are some things that belong to that. So I, I want, wanted you and all of us to be thinking, you know, where, where do I draw the line? What are the issues that are worth dying for? That I would rather give up my, my earthly life, my physical life, rather than to deny the Lord or dishonor him. We never know where, what is going to challenge our faith and our devotion to the Lord now. We have to be ready for it. And when it comes to a situation like that, then this is a story in the Bible that you go back to and encourage yourself, look at their example, this is how they were, and this helps to confirm us in our own faith and our 
commitment and devotion to obedience to the Lord. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.